Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, Dirty Birders. Hope everyone is safe and healthy at home during this quarantine. I'm changing things up a little bit due to quarantine. Instead of doing my usual interviewing someone about a specific bird, I decided that I'm going to sit out by my bird feeders in Elkins, West Virginia, and kind of talk about the different birds that come and narrate what's happening. But since this quarantine started, a lot of people have been spending more time inside and really their only way to interact with the world is to peek out their window and the wildlife that they're most likely to see is probably birds and squirrels too of course so i figured i would kind of talk about those common birds that come to the feeders talk about the history of bird feeding in general and hopefully this is something that can help you guys stay a little sane and get your outdoor fix during quarantine Now I'm in town, so there will be a little bit of traffic noise. One good thing about quarantine, most people working from home, is that there's a lot less traffic in the mornings. I can hear the birds a lot better, and I'm sure the wildlife probably enjoys that. Now I'm recording from Elkins, West Virginia, which is in the eastern part of the state, at about 1,800 feet in the Allegheny Mountains. It has a thousand or so people, with some more in the surrounding areas and is nestled in a nice little valley between Cheat Mountain and Rich Mountain. And while I am living in the town with the lumber mill nearby, which you can probably hear, and the occasional cars driving by or dog barking, the mountains still feel very close and you can see them, and it's not too far to the woods. So we get an okay amount of uh, bird life here, the occasional migrant coming through, or ones journeying from the surrounding woods, but we also get a lot of those birds that anyone who lives close to human habitation and has a feeder is used to seeing, the house sparrows, the starlings, those birds that seem to follow us around and we seem to bring wherever we go. And it was a very cold night last night in Elkins, uh, possibly record low temperature for April 21st. It got down to about 24 degrees. It's warming up quickly now. The skies are clear. The stars are starting to disappear. It's about 6 o'clock. And the light is starting to come. So I expect after that cold night last night, the birds will have used some of their fat stores and will be flocking to the feeder to try to replenish. The robins were up and talking and singing. And more and more keep joining in every minute. Robins seem to be some of the first birds to start singing in the morning. Sometimes you'll get a bird like a mockingbird, which will sing all night. 
but robins tend to start the chorus. This is the dawn chorus, and when you wake up before the sun and go outside, you might hear no birds or just a couple birds, but as the sun gets closer and closer to rising, the birds all join in and uh, kind of becomes a cacophony at one point and then slows down um, throughout the day. Some birds will sing here and there, and then towards the evening there'll be a less than dawn chorus, but an evening chorus that's still pretty good. But this dawn chorus is always a treat to hear. Hopefully we'll get some song sparrows waking up soon. Now I'll describe my feeders for you guys too. I have three feeder poles kind of situated in a little garden right near my house in my backyard. Right now only a raspberry bush and a brussels sprout bush from last year. Brussels sprout bush. Yeah, are alive. I call it a Brussels sprout bush because it's kind of gone crazy flowering at this point. I need to pull it up. I'm not going to get any good Brussels sprouts from it, but I like at least a little bit of greenery in there amongst all the empty pots. So my pole that's closest to the house, I have a platform feeder on it, um, a wooden platform feeder, which I spread a hot seed on. I used to mix my own, but it didn't seem to work. So then I started buying store-bought hot seed to keep the squirrels away. Uh, mammals can taste capsaicin, but birds can't, so it's a way to deter the squirrels from eating your bird food. Then I have a tube feeder that's squirrel-proof. Um, my next pole, a little bit farther away, is a sock feeder filled with uh, thistle seed for the finches. Oh, there's that song sparrow. Then farthest away is a couple things, a kind of platform suet feeder that the starlings love, uh, unfortunately, but at least it keeps them away from the cage suet feeder, which the woodpeckers seem to like a little more. Also hanging is a small wooden feeder with safflower seeds. Uh, the safflower seeds the starlings don't like, the squirrels don't like, but other birds, more native species like, which is good. Oh, I hear a cardinal also. Yep. Male cardinal. I always think they sound like a siren when they sing. Song sparrow cardinal, the robins in the background. If you think of it like a symphony, the robins are kind of like the background strings providing the ambiance and then you have the cardinal, the song sparrow, the morning dove kind of chiming in. This is probably one of my favorite parts of the dawn chorus right as new singers start to add in their songs. But this part is also nice because it's before the starlings wake up and start their racket. It's still a little too dark for the birds to be flying. I can see some robins kind of moving around from the ground to tree branches, but it's still pretty still. So before the birds start showing up, why don't I talk a little bit about the history of bird feeding. So a lot of sources you see will kind of trace the start of American bird feeding to Henry David Thoreau in Walden, where he talks about throwing corn out his window and watching blue jays and chickadees eat it. I don't really like Henry David Thoreau, 
for reasons I won't go into here. But this is certainly not uh, the first case. People have been doing that for a long time, feeding scratched animals. That's, I mean, how we first domesticated dogs. And uh, even in the 6th century, monks were recorded feeding pigeons outside the monastery. And even farther back than then, the first kind of organized bird feeding, like in a culture that I could find, was about 3,500 years ago in the Indian Hindu Vedics. There's a uh, ritual called Vajna, which is uh, one of the five great Vedic Hindu sacrifices. And these are sacrifices that are made to all living beings. So this isn't specifically birds, it's all living beings. But uh, what they would primarily use is these food cakes made of seed, rice, butter. It sounds a lot like suet, um, and it, it kind of is. And uh, they would leave it out, and birds especially would love this. Also, other animals. I mean, who doesn't love some good rice and butter, right? The Egyptians also were involved in culture-wide bird feeding and caring. The sacred ibis and peregrine falcon were particularly sacred to the Egyptians, um, especially in their burial. We found millions of mummified sacred ibises and peregrine falcons. I read like in one complex there were 1.5 sacred ibises alone. And to get this many, I mean, sure, they hunted them, but also they raised them in captivity. And then they also kind of preserved environments that they liked or helped kind of uh, terraform the land, really, to be environments they would like. And then they would feed them there, too, to boost up their numbers that they could then harvest. And pretty much forever, humans have been interested in animals and uh, feeding them. So kind of disorganized here and there, people, as they like feeding leftovers to animals, has gone on. Some cultures, like the Egyptians, the Indians, like I mentioned, uh, kind of incorporated them into their culture, this bird feeding. And throughout the 1700s, 1800s, there's letters of people in uh, the United Kingdom and the U.S. feeding birds. It wasn't until the late 1800s and the early 1900s that it became kind of more organized into uh, societies of people who would talk about feeding birds and how they like to do it. In 1825, I found uh, a guy, John Freeman Doveston. He was a British naturalist, and he and some other uh, People were very interested in watching nature in general. They would write letters to each other about it all the time. And it seems like they were also discussing uh, how to build the best bird feeder. Um, one of his friends writes him about his bird feeder. Mine is fixed to a post, and the cats often rob it. So John Freeman Doveston kind of built his own contraption, and he writes to his friend about it. Um, his friend is looking at it and says, I see the trencher is suspended by three wires and stretched from window to tree. And this is a device that John Freeman Doveston called the ornithotroph. It's kind of a combination of ornithology and trough. Because <laughs> um, basically that's what it was. It was a, a trough hanging from wires. And as John Freeman Doveston describes it, And ye may have two or more on the same line, trimmed with bones, seeds, and various food, piercing the trencher with a few holes to let the wet out. It is extremely amusing to see various birds that become so familiar. And this was kind of 
one of the first popular bird feeders that got published in journals and uh, people started making their own based on his design. In 1854, Walden was published by Henry David Thoreau and his idyllic descriptions of nature and the environment also kind of helped to fan this naturalist feeling that was starting to develop in a lot of the public in America and the UK. And bird feeding began to pick up popularity as people became more and more interested in the natural world. The winter of 1890 to 1891 was a particularly hard one in the UK and kind of helped to fan a lot of interest in feeding birds. Uh, newspapers were publishing articles lamenting uh, how the people and animals were faring in this particularly hard winter. Um, it was preceded by one of the top 10 warmest winters on record, but then that winter, the mean temp was about 11 degrees Fahrenheit below the mean, um, and it dropped as low in the negatives and had snow depths from 8 to 10 feet in certain parts of England. So people were struggling, and also the animals were too. So people began uh, developing a sympathy for the birds and the wildlife and began feeding them uh, on a national scale, which was kind of different. And newspapers were like publishing recipes on the, how to make the best suet, how to mix the best uh, seed and everything like that. And so people became really engaged and started feeding birds on a mass scale for the first time. As far as in America, a lot of societies were forming where people would feed birds or talk about the different ways they would feed birds. In the mid-1890s, Anna Botsford Comstock, a professor at Cornell, started a nature study program for kids that encouraged children to feed birds. And bird feeding became more and more popular, and as the public became more and more interested in it, uh, businesses also took note and began developing feeders for sale, developing uh, pre-mixed feed mixes, and selling them. And really by like the 1910s, 1920s, this was kind of an established practice and, and business. And now today it's developed to a $3 billion a year industry spent just on bird feed in the U.S. And then another $800 million on feeders and bass and other accessories. Some Canada geese flying overhead. It's a lot brighter now and I can see the birds moving a lot more. There's a song sparrow flitting around on the ground there. A cardinal was just up in the tree. I expect we'll have our first visitor to the feeder shortly here. I think that's a starling. Oh, we have our first visitor. It is a chipping sparrow. Cool. He's down on the ground feeding at the base of the feeder. This chipping sparrow, I've just seen him. I haven't seen any other chipping sparrows. And he first started coming probably four days ago to the feeder. So I don't know if he is kind of migrating through or only a summer resident here. Or if he's just now finding this feeder, because I only put it in about a year ago. It can sometimes take birds a while to find feeders. Even if you move a feeder just a few feet, sometimes, for some reason, they take a while to find it. Usually two weeks is kind of, when I put a new feeder in, it usually takes two weeks for birds to start regularly coming to it.
Shipping sparrows are pretty cool. They have a distinctive red rufus, I guess you would call it. It's kind of a rusty... Well, song sparrow very close by. Uh, chipping sparrows kind of have a rusty cap, which really demarcates them. It's really hard with sparrows to tell them apart. I've had a hard time, at least. But the chipping sparrow, you can tell, because it has that rufous cap, and it also has a distinct black eye line. Um, and its bill color is usually uniform. If it's in the breeding season, it's going to be black. When they're juveniles, their bill can be pink sometimes and then when they're out of the breeding season it can it can become more pink and that makes them easily confused i think with the field sparrow which has a pink bill and and looks very similar has a rufous cap also but the field sparrow has a distinct white eye ring which kind of tells it apart it's also easy to confuse the chipping sparrow with the tree sparrow because it also has a prominent rufous cap like that um, but the tree sparrow, instead of having that black eye line, it kind of has a brown stripe. And then it also has a bicolored bill. It's usually black on top, yellow on the bottom. Now that the sun is rising, the wind's starting to pick up a little bit. Hopefully it's not too bad for you guys. Got some starlings making their racket in the tree behind me. There's some robins looking at the feeder, debating whether they want to come down and join the chipping sparrow as he's eating away at whatever's fallen overnight. It was pretty windy last night, so I'm sure a lot of seeds were kind of shaken. <laughs> Robin flew like right over my head. I hope I got those wing beats. But to go back to uh, feeders a little bit, there's been some debate about whether they're good or bad for birds. Um, the studies that I found, birds almost never do their whole entire diet from feeders, at least native birds. Uh, they'll, they need to supplement it with insects or more wild native foods that have uh, more of the nutrients that they need. And then birds will kind of change their diet by the seasons also, so they're not just going to want to eat seeds all the time. The studies I've read, kind of the consensus is around a third of birds' diet. If they're given regular access to a feeder, they'll usually only supplement about a third of their diet with the feeder. Um, I'm sure that changes for birds like starlings or house sparrows that are non-native and seem to kind of rely on feeders to survive. Um, I saw um, some studies that showed that um, gray squirrels, especially in areas where they're non-native and have been introduced, like in uh, England, they will just feast on the feeders and pretty much rely on them for their food. And that's bad because they're not native and they'll push out a lot of native bird species. Um, also, birds really don't like when a squirrel's at a feeder. And um, studies that they've done show that when they put like a squirrel model or a stuffed squirrel um, onto a feeder, even if it's not blocking the holes, not even moving, the birds will stay away from it. I've done a lot of squirrel proofing measures and I seem to always battle them when I have bird feeders, but right now I think I got them in a good place. I got a squirrel proof tube feeder they know they can't get at, they don't like that hot seed, and everything else is, uh, the suet is usually hot suet so they stay away from that, they don't like the safflower seeds, and they certainly don't like thistle seeds. Man, that chipping sparrow is just still going away the bottom of the pole. No one else has joined him yet. 
my presence and talking might kind of be scaring them away. I mean, they're pretty used to me. Hopefully their hunger will overcome their fear of me. It's now 625 here and it is light out. You can see pretty well. I think the sun doesn't officially rise for another five minutes or so. But certainly light enough to see. And we should be getting some birds around here soon. The chipping sparrow seems to have taken off. Got his fill for now. And also, here comes one of the many stray cats of this neighborhood walking down a path. That might be why the chipping sparrow flew away. Cats are, of course, a huge killer of birds. Um, both hunting them out in their nests and catching them. They like to frequent my garden and use it as a hunting spot. Um, I have several rose bushes, which when I trim, I'll lay down the branches in the areas that the cats like to hide to try to ambush the birds to deter them. That seems to work pretty well. They mostly stay away. I have seen evidence that a mourning dove was killed at my feeder by a cat. Of course, they don't kill the starlings or house sparrows. Come on. Oh, our first visitor to the platform feeder is a white-breasted nuthatch. He looks like he's picking out some of the shelled sunflower seeds and eating them, gobbling them down quickly. He's probably... Oh, he just flew away. Usually I've noticed he'll look for a peanut and go take that off and kind of hammer little bits of it to eat it. Well, that's wonderful. I always like to see a native species, our first visitor to that platform feeder. It looks like the house sparrows are starting to gear up to come to the feeder. They kind of usually gather in the rose bushes and then flock over together. Now the white-breasted nuthatch is a great bird and certainly one of my favorites. It's great. It's here year-round and its style is kind of similar to a woodpecker's with looking on trees for bug eggs to eat. But as its name implies nuthatch it'll save up nuts and seeds and store them away in bark crevices and other places and then come retrieve them in the winter when food is scarce and uses its sharp chisel like bill to hammer away at seeds and open them up or break off smaller pieces it'll usually kind of place them in a crevice in the in the bark or in some wood to hammer away at them it has an interesting style too of how it goes about looking for food instead of like woodpeckers going up trees and using its tail as kind of a third leg support to balance itself. It'll go down trees and relies on its really strong feet to kind of hold on as it just goes head first down a tree. It's really cool to watch. Oh, the dogs are awake now. The starlings are really pretty vocally skilled birds. I hate on them all the time because they're an invasive species, but they are certainly pretty skilled in what they can do. 
And speaking of the devil, one just landed on the suet feeder, took a look at me, and kind of flew away, but I'm sure he'll be back. But Stalins are a very versatile bird, not just in their vocalizations, but also their um, feeding behaviors. They have these long legs and they'll walk on the ground away a grackle would or a robin would and feed. But they also have um, good perching abilities and will can perch on pretty much any feeder. But my main my main quibble with starlings is that they are cavity nesters, so they rely on pre-existing holes made by other species and uh, in trees or posts or anything like that. And since they're kind of a big bird, they're about the size of a robin but a little more slender, they can kick out a lot of our native smaller species and they'll sometimes wait for them to excavate or settle down in a hole and then they know it's a good hole so then they'll go in and kick the bird out. Starlings were first introduced to America by a guy Eugene Schifflin. This guy is infamous in the birding world as being that dude who freaking introduced starlings. So this guy, Eugene Schifflin, he was an amateur ornithologist, but most importantly, or most unfortunately, a Shakespeare enthusiast. Um, he's seems His family seems to be huge Anglophiles. I saw he had a grandfather who was a secretary for the British military during the Revolutionary War. So they really liked jolly old England. And in 1890, he released 60 starlings in Central Park, and then another 40 the following year. And that flock has now grown to 200 million. Um, he did this as a plan with the American Acclimatization Society, which he was a part of, and had branches uh, all over the country. And their mission was to bring animals and plants from other parts of the world to the U.S. So what would certainly be legal today uh, was kind of seen as a scientific good by them to introduce foreign plants to the U.S. and civilize it. So Shifflin's plan was to introduce all the birds that appear in Shakespeare in the U.S. and establish them here. Um, so the starling was kind of really the only one that caught on. Uh, he also attempted to introduce bullfinches, calffinches, nightingales, skylarks, but they were unsuccessful, thankfully. But those starlings, they really caught on. I think it's part of their versatility, the fact they can feed on the ground and the fact that they can perch and feed. I'm sure the popularity of people feeding birds in their backyard kind of helped these birds spread too because that was picking up right around this time and so they had a ready food source to go to. Oh, the white-breasted nuthatch is back selecting some seeds and taking off to go hatch them. I'm certainly going to do a longer episode on starlings at some point. All, all the birds I mentioned today I'm planning on doing full episodes on, but I just want to mention some interesting facts while I'm sitting here looking at them. These acclimatization... Why can't I say that? These acclimatization societies were, like I said, all over the U.S. And one of them in Cincinnati is responsible for introducing the house sparrow. The house sparrow was introduced in other parts of the country too, but they really 
uh, took it to the next level in the 1870s because they thought that this would be instrumental in uh, reducing pests in the U.S. And now the house sparrow is pretty ubiquitous across the country wherever people are. And I don't know why they thought it was going to reduce pests so much because their diet mostly consists of seed and grain. Some blue jays, possibly one will come down to the feeder. I wonder if that blue jay is talking about me. It's like some dude sitting at my favorite feeder. That's blue jay language for fuck this guy. He's sitting up top of a maple right near the feeder, kind of looking down at me. It is about 6.45 right now. The sun is well and truly risen, although it is still very chilly. Male house finch, hopefully coming down. Nope, flew away. I'm scaring these guys a little bit more than I thought. thought they'd be pretty used to me by now, but I guess they're wary for a good reason of humans. Now the house finch is a kind of interesting story. It's all over the eastern U.S. now and places such as Hawaii, but oh, here comes a house sparrow. But originally is a bird that was only in southwestern U.S. and Mexico, but it was became popular as a pet bird and was sold uh, illegally, actually, um, in New York City a lot and uh, under the name Hollywood Finches. It was sold illegally because in 1918 there had been a law against selling uh, any kind of migratory birds in the U.S. Um, this was one of the laws I mentioned in my Rosie at Spoonbill episode that kind of helped fight the uh, plume traders in the plume war. So check that episode out if you haven't yet. Great story about the people that lost their lives protecting birds. But in the 1940s, with the threat of prosecution for selling these Hollywood finches, uh, there was a mass release of these birds, both by the people selling them and the people that had bought them by pets, uh, in order to avoid prosecution. And these birds um, spread pretty quickly. In the matter of about 40 years, they had taken over most of the eastern U.S. And unfortunately, they were also... Nice robin call. I don't know if they were introduced to Hawaii. Probably. And most unfortunately, they have been displacing their close relative, the purple finch, which is easily confused with the house finch. Um, it... Uh, takes a little bit to be able to tell them apart. They both have similar coloring, um, uh, similar size. They look very similar. Um, you can tell them apart by their beaks. The purple finch has kind of a stouter beak, and it has more coloring, that kind of red-purple coloring on it, than the house finch does. But yeah, unfortunately, it's been uh, displacing uh, that finch, and then out west, the uh, Cassin's finch, 
Well, they're an interesting bird because they're very heavily vegetarian. They're one of the only birds that feeds their young exclusively plant foods. There is a song sparrow eating away at the bottom of the feeder. Maybe that guy that we were hearing earlier singing away. But yeah, most birds will feed their young insects. Uh, the young need that extra protein to grow quick, even if as an adult they're mainly going to eat just vegetarian food. But the house finch is different that way. Vegan babies. As far as some of the birds that come to my feeder, um, cardinals, chickadees, titmice will come by. The house finch, house sparrow, starlings, of course. Occasionally a blue jay will come down and eat from the platform feeder. That's really the only way to get uh, blue jays to eat from feeders is to have a some kind of platform feeder for them to land on and eat. They don't perch on like a tube feed or an eat or anything like that. That chipping sparrow has been a nice welcome recently. Occasionally robins, grackles, uh, a lone cowbird will come around and feed on the ground. A pair of downy woodpeckers will come by. I believe I've seen a hairy woodpecker come. And there's a red belly that occasionally will come eat from the suet feeder. He's always a delight to see. Red-bellied woodpeckers that are named red belly, but I mean, you never see their belly. It's always pressed up against a tree. That is one of those famous instances where a bird was named by a guy who got a dead sample of it. Oh, that's cool. A white egret just flew by. I always feel amazed when I see blue herons or egrets out in the mountains like this. Um, I always just think of them more of a coastal bird since I... And from Yorktown, Virginia, on the coast of Virginia there. But they like to fish these mountain streams, too. Now, hopefully you guys can hear it through the intermittent car noises. But the dawn chorus of the birds has kind of not exactly calmed down. It's still loud, but it's way more disorganized than it was originally. Whereas in the morning it started with the robins, kind of, like I said, that string section in the background, and then other birds kind of charming in with their points. Um, now it's kind of like the symphony's finished, and this is like the after party, or just like practice fooling around after, like the more formal practice is over, and each bird is kind of chiming in as it wants. It's not as, doesn't sound as organized. If anyone has seen Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, the house sparrows are kind of reminding me of that now. There's tons of them perched on the maple tree, and they're all kind of staring at me, wanting to come down to the feeder. A morning dove just flew over. That sound you hear, that's not them making that sound with their, their mouths or anything. That's made by their wings as they fly. Oh, man, that chipping sparrow is bold. He's back down again by the sock, looking around, hopping from my tomato cages. Oh, and of course a house sparrow sees him and has to come kick him out so he can grab some seed. 
The male house sparrows are surprisingly aggressive um, for their size, and I've seen the females be pretty aggressive too. They fight amongst themselves, and they'll kick other um, smaller birds out, and even try to challenge some some other birds. Um, starlings are probably the most rambunctiously aggressive ones, but um, speaking of that red-bellied woodpecker, um, he uh, I once observed him uh, feeding at the suet feeder, and there were some starlings around, and they liked to eat the suet too, and man, that red belly was giving them the business. He was like opening his beak and like threatening them, and I couldn't hear him because I was inside looking out, but I'm sure he was making some noises. Speaking of that, the starlings are kind of popping in and eating a little bit of the suet. The chipping sparrow is getting a nice little feed on the tube feeder right now. He's such a chill dude. I, I really like him. He isn't super scared of me. He's wary. He, I mean, he's a small little guy, so he knows his size, but he's um, sticking around and, and eating and, and hanging out. I think the male cardinal's about to come over. I can hear him. He's so close. It's awesome. But the red-bellied woodpecker, that's one of those famous cases of a bird being named by some taxonomist who got a uh, dead bird sent over to him in England, uh, just the skin of it, um, and so never saw it in real life. Maybe saw a drawing if he was lucky. Um, and so he's looking it over and sees, oh, there's some red feathers on the belly. I'll call it the red-bellied woodpecker, even though we never see the red belly. It's always pressed up against the tree. Um, I would like to call it um, the red-naped woodpecker. I've heard that put out there as a better, better name for it, which I think is fitting. I was about to say ladder-backed woodpecker, but there already is one of those. Uh, maybe checkerboard woodpecker because the uh, red-bellied really has kind of a black and white checkerboard pattern on the back. This is pretty nice right now. There's two male cardinals defining their territory, calling out to each other while I watch the chipping sparrow just go away at the tube feeder. Occasional morning dove chiming in. Occasional car driving by and disturbing the silence, but it's okay. It has been interesting, this quarantine, kind of noticing the difference in things. Um, some things are a lot quieter and slower. There's less traffic, less people driving, and our uh, outdoor areas, it's been interesting too. Um, some areas are just flooded with people. Um, more kind of high density and crowded than they're probably used to experiencing. And then other places have closed, obviously, um, such as a lot of national parks and state parks. But other places that are still open, if it's a nice day, you'll see people just flooding there to get a chance to kind of get out and do something. Oh, and the house finch just kind of displaced the chipping sparrow a bit. Yeah, he just chased him away. You're not even eating, dude. All you did was just scare him away. 
a turkey vulture just flew over. Really flapping hard. I guess there's not much of an updraft today. He's soaring some, but usually see them making much more minimal effort to get high up in the air, and he, he was working for it. We kind of see turkey vultures everywhere. They're, one, easy to spot because they're large birds that are kind of flying um, in areas that are open where they can get a good look at the ground for anything dead for them to eat. Um, and then also their diet has been boosted a lot by humans from roadkill. Um, you'll commonly see them by the side of the road eating a unfortunate animal that was hit. So I wonder how they're being impacted right now because usually the spring is kind of a starving time for a lot of animals. It's their winter stores are kind of all used up and they're just waiting for everything to start coming to life. And probably one of the good side effects of a lot less people driving is there's a lot less roadkill. But if you're a vulture that's been relying on that, then may see a little bit of a population crash there. Or they may move to uh, some new food sources. I was thinking about that with uh, ravens and crows. If if there's less roadkill, maybe they'll have to move towards taking more fledglings and nestlings from bird nests or going after more eggs. Most people's questions during this quarantine is, when am I going to be able to go out again, get a haircut, when is this all going to be over, and nope, I'm over here thinking about, what are the crows going to eat? <laughs> Probably why I drive my fiancé crazy. It's now 7 a.m., and the whole town of Elkins is waking up right now. And the birds are certainly awake now. My presence really scared them a little more than I thought. I thought they had gotten more used to me, but only a couple were really coming around. And other than the chiffing sparrow, no one really stuck around much when they came to a feeder and then saw me. Maybe I'll do a little bit of narration from inside where they're less scared of me and are more likely to come around. Also, if you guys like this, I can do it again. Uh, the more I sit out here, the more they get used to me and my recording equipment. Birds are smart and they'll learn that you're not a threat. As it gets warmer and as we're still stuck inside, maybe take a morning to wake up early before the sun and go sit outside with some coffee and just listen to that morning chorus and see what birds you see around. And if you're able, go back and go to bed and get snuggle up in the warm covers. But it's really a cool experience uh, to just kind of sit quiet and observe the world wake up around you. Um, and if you have a feeder, um, try to sit near that and move closer and closer a little bit um, as the birds get more used to you. And um, it's really cool to see them first thing in the morning, get that feed and um, and sing and come around. It's, it's a really nice way to wake up.
I wanted to read a little bit from this book about uh, the house sparrow. This is a book called Birds, fittingly. Um, it was... My mom got it for me at a one of those open-air markets in London. And let's see... By M.K.C. Scott. A lot of initials there. Described by J. Inga Henderson. 48 Colored Pictures. By Thomas Nelson and Sons. In London, Edinburgh, New York, Toronto, and Paris. But there's an inscription at the front um, that it was given to the Woodford Gren Preparatory School. Presented to Gwyneth Cope Ma for passing the general admission examination to secondary schools on July 1936. So, wow. Pre World War II. So, this is a description of the house sparrow that's in here. It says, Wherever we go, we always have the sparrow with us. Even in the crowded streets, he is to be seen dashing down almost under the horse's hooves for scraps of food. There, he is a grimy little person, and you cannot see his colors for the smoke has dimmed them. I think that's a pollution problem there, London. Not, don't blame it on the bird. <laughs> but round about cottages and farmhouses in the country, he is very different, and the white bars of his wings are clear and distinct, and his cheeks and breasts are soft pale gray, and his wings bright chestnut brown. The cock has a black chin and throat. The sparrow... <laughs> he's talking about the male bird there, he's not talk saying that. The bird has a... <laughs> okay, never mind. Probably edit that out. Um, the sparrow is very bold, fearless, and clever. But he is watchful and suspicious where human beings are concerned. Although he is constantly about our doors, and his cheerful chirping may be heard at any hour of the day, he does not make friends with man and trust him, as do the robin and others of our favorites. They're talking about the common English robin there. Um, sparrows are very fond of company, however, and do all their business except nest building and little crowds, talking and arguing all the time. This is true. They're very noisy, noisy birds, like I said, kind of pushing each other around and pushing other birds around. Like other birds, they take dust baths and clean their oily feathers, and you will often see them on a dry road. Turn the page. Spluttering dust all over themselves as if it were water. In the autumn, when the grain is ripening, and they go in large parties to the field. They are fond of grain and seeds of all kind, and that is what they live on most of the year. See? Grain and seeds! I don't know what the heck the Cincinnati Acclimatization Society was thinking when they released them to eat pests in the U.S. Sparrows build in holes and walls, in a rain pipe, or in any sheltered nook about a house, and sometimes in trees. The nest is made of straw, moss, wool, and feathers, and the eggs are five or six in number, Dull white covered all over with blackish markings. As soon as one brood is weird and able to fly, another clutch of eggs is laid, and so on through the summer. The sparrow's a cousin of the finches, and like them, has a broad bill and rather thick, heavy figure. So there's a nice little description from that book. I think I'll be moving inside shortly here. I'm getting very cold sitting out here, even though I am bundled up to the gills, to the neck tufts, bundled up to the bills. There we go. There's a bird. Metaphor. I don't know if it works. This has been cool, though. I really like sitting out here and documenting everything, kind of waking up here around Elkins, the bird life waking up. 
it's interesting that the two birds that seem most okay with my presence were native species ones, the uh, wide-breasted nuthatch and that chipping sparrow, the ones that really hung around the most. Occasional stoppings in from the starling and house sparrow and house finch, which are all non-native to this part of the country, but still very cool. Like I said, last night was a cold night, and birds really heavily rely on their fat stores and what they've eaten during the day to keep them going during the night. Some birds, like chickadees, can kind of enter a state of turgor and drop their body temperature really low in order to conserve energy and, and survive the nights because they're real small. But, uh, I mean, birds are warm-blooded, so just like us mammals, they rely on burning fuel, basically, to keep their body temperature up and keep them going. Interestingly, today the starlings have been eating from the cage feeder a lot. Ever since I installed that platform suet feeder, they have been preferring that and mostly staying away from the cage feeder, but maybe they feel more protected. Oh, awesome. White-breasted nut hatches back. Taking a couple little bites. He seems to look for the... Oh my god, he flew like straight at me. I thought he was about to hit me in the eye. <laughs> Such a cool bird. One time I uh, was sitting out in the woods where some of them were feeding and I was, I'd been sitting there for a while um, and one of them flew from a tree, kind of saw me, but barely turned direction and actually landed on my shoulder and then uh, took off immediately too. But it was like really cool to feel him perch on my shoulder there. And I thought that one was about to do the same thing. He was flying straight at me. There's a female house sparrow, I believe, eating away, digging up something below the feeder right now. Let me try to grab the binoculars and get a little bit of a better look at her. I was hoping maybe the cowbird would come by, the lone male cowbird I've been seeing recently, brown-headed cowbird. They're kind of cool. They're related to grackles and... um. They look, the males look a lot like them from the head down, although their head is a distinctive brown colored, um, but they have kind of that glossy iridescent black body that grackles have. They are smaller and kind of slimmer than, than grackles are, though. The brown-headed cowbirds are the hedonists of the American bird world. Um, they are totally brood parasites, kind of like uh, European cuckoos are and what they do is they pretty much just live their life eating um, having sex as they want they're not monogamous at all the males or females they'll just mate all over the place during breeding season and then the females go and they fly around and they look for bird nests to lay their eggs in to <laughs> raise their young um, and they'll choose a wide variety of species, anything from ground-nesting birds, uh, like oven birds, to birds that nest in trees, like most of our songbirds and warblers. They do seem to select nests that have eggs in them that are smaller than what the cowbird egg is, and I suppose this is so that their young cowbird, when it hatches, is bigger than other nestlings and can outcompete them and get the most food. Some birds are able to tell, like yellow warblers are able to tell when a cowbird egg has been, has been laid in their nest. 
And sometimes uh, warblers, especially, they're too small to be able to like roll the egg out or just kind of unable to. So they'll actually build a whole new nest on top of the already pre-existing nest to just kind of cover up that cowbird egg. And they're like, all right, we're starting over. Something's wrong here. There's a big old egg in here amongst my little eggs. Let's just go at it again. But it's kind of incredible. Every So every brown-headed cowbird that you see, you know it wasn't raised by its parents. It was raised by another bird species, which is kind of crazy to think of. All right, well, I'm going to end the outside portion of this. It's been fun. It's been chilly. Welcome the day. Quick uh, addendum to this as I stand inside finishing cooking breakfast and looking out the feeder. Now that I'm not outside, definitely a lot more stuff was coming to the feeder. All those house sparrows and starlings swooped in. I also saw the grackle walking around doing its little head bob as it fed some morning doves. The white-breasted nuthatch has been pretty regular coming back to that platform feeder. So a cat showed up. I guess there's a new spot I need to put some rose thorns because he's hunkered down and kind of scaring everything away. Surprisingly, the white-breasted nuthatch seems to be unaffected and keeps popping to the platform feeder and going away. I guess he's small and feels pretty secure up on the platform. Um, everything else seems to be scared by the cat, though. And the cardinals came down, the male and female pair, and they were feeding at the uh, platform feeder. It's been pretty cool watching them. Uh, they've been bonded all winter, from what I can tell. And um, this spring, the male was feeding the female seeds from the feeder. Um, it was pretty cool to watch. Um, that's part of the kind of their bonding rituals to get ready for mating and uh, raising some young together. Well, thanks for joining me, everyone, and listen to this. I really appreciate it. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John Janusik, with our rotating panel of co-hosts. Thank you for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our outro music is New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers, and our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. Follow them on Instagram and check them out wherever you get your music. Graphic design by my beautiful fiance, Lauren McClure. Be sure to subscribe and rate Dirty Bird Podcast. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice memo of your birding experience to have it read on the show. Until next time, stay dirty, my birdies. <laughs> <laughs>